All right, welcome to Political as Heck, a podcast where we discuss Utah politics and policy. I'm Corey Astle, joined by Utah State Senator Todd Weiler. Hey, Corey. We're back. Yeah, we're back. It's great. Here we go. Former Congressman Rob Bishop abruptly resigned from Utah's Independent Redistricting Commission last week, saying this commission is designed not to work. Uh, What's the consequence of Rob Bishop jumping ship? on the redistricting, the independent, the so-called. <laughs> exactly. Commission, uh, so, commission. so Bishop says, uh, it do, he says, quote, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to look at some of these maps and see what will happen. I can guarantee you there will be three Republicans and one Democrat elected for every, for each of the next five cycles. It's simply the way the, f- the maps are drawn. I mean, I don't want to impugn the efforts or the motives of the commission members, but the congressional maps have one thing in common. They all congregate all of the Democratic areas of the state into a single congressional district like it was really done on purpose. Which and is gerrymandering by definition. By well, yeah, yeah. Definition. So the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, DCCC, could not have drawn a more favorable map if they tried for Democrats. And this is in a state that's, what, 35% Democratic? And it, well, it no. also... No, the Democrats, if you look at the statewide elections over the past 10 years, the Democratic candidate on a statewide basis never gets 35%. It's usually between 28 and 32 or 33. So it's a little yeah, bit Yeah, so th- maybe 30%. So yeah. not, not even a third of the state. So, I mean, I think, I think you'll speak to this, but the maps for legislative districts completely disregard the boundaries for the current legislative districts. And it's like these guys thought it was more important to make a statement than to draw a map that would actually put the legislature in maybe in an uncomfortable position if they chose to reject it. But in this case, I, I don't I don't think they'll be uncomfortable at all to reject it. I think the legislature is going to pat the commission on the head and thank them for their service. And I think Bishop's reg- resignation only confirms where this is going. I personally, I should say this, am totally fine with that because I completely agree with Speaker Brad Wilson. The duly elected representatives of the people are best suited to draw district boundaries. You know, elected officials, they're accountable to the voters and they should draw the lines. No independent commission is actually independent. And I don't mean this as a personal attack on the commission members, but it's just a fact of human nature. No independent commission is truly independent. And I think obviously that was borne out with these maps. So my final thought, I think it's much better to give authority to elected officials who actually have to face the voters. And I always prefer the buck to stop with elected representatives they put their name on the ballot. They have to face voters. An appointed commission, they're not accountable to anyone really but themselves. Yeah, and I just want to point out, just to back up what I said uh, a minute ago, so Spencer Cox got, um, well, Chris Peterson, who ran against Spencer Cox last year, got 30.3% of the vote. Mm, and yeah. uh, Greg Scordis, who's a relatively well-known name, got 33% of the vote against Sean Reyes. And so um, I, since I've been watching Utah politics, I, I haven't seen a Democrat get 35 yeah, percent or not very many. It's, it's usually closer to 30. And I just want to point out that the Republicans in Massachusetts have a higher percent of the vote than the Democrats do in Utah. And Massachusetts has a lot more Congress people than Utah. Guess how many of them are Republican? Not many. Zero. <laughs> because if you only get 33% of the vote, 
you don't win any race. And so yeah. unless, I mean, you, you can, you, if the Democrats in Utah are evenly split up among all of the congressional districts and they get 33 or even 35% of the vote, they win zero seats. And yeah. so you kind of have to draw a district to get that 33 or 35% all in the same district so that, they, I mean, anyway, I've been saying for years, uh, Democrats in Utah aren't against gerrymandering. They're against Republicans gerrymandering. Yeah. <laughs> and I think I can now say the same thing for our so-called independent redistricting commission. They're not against gerrymandering. They just want themselves to be able to do the gerrymandering and not the duly elected uh, officials. All right. So this week, Utah House Majority Leader Francis Gibson announced he's resigning from the legislature. Todd, what do you expect in the wake of this shakeup? I expect someone will, I expect Mike Schultz to be elected as the new um, majority leader in the House. And Val Peterson's announced that he's going to stay where he is as assistant whip. Um, I expect that Jefferson Moss or someone equally as capable will be elected as the new whip in the House. And then my guess would be that Robert Spinlove becomes the vice chair of the powerful executive appropriations for the House. There are some other there are some other names in the mix, and it would be really interesting uh, to see if um, if the House wants to elect a female into their leadership ranks, like the Senate mm, did, yeah, um, you know, three years ago with Ann Milner, and the Senate's had several uh, women in uh, leadership positions. Of course, the House had Becky um, Lockhart as Speaker, and the Senate, and 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 to their credit, the Senate has never elected a Senate president, has not yet elected a female member of the body as Senate president. So I'm not dissing on the House, but um, I think some of the uh, female members of the House who might be considered for leadership uh, positions, either elected or appointed, um, would be Carrie Ann Lisenby. Uh, I know Melissa Ballard might be interested, uh, Candace Perucci, and th there are several other capable and qualified women in that, Republican women in that body. Yeah, I mean, there's some, there's some pretty solid women in the legislature, as you just mentioned, and I think- yeah. Um, I don't think any of us would be surprised if in the next several years, you know, I wouldn't, I personally wouldn't be surprised at all if there were more women than men in, yeah, in leadership. Yeah. Positions. And, you know, Carlene Walker, um, I think uh, was in um, Senate leadership, you know, a decade ago, Deidre Henderson was rules chairs a, a few years back in the Senate. Um, Margaret Dayton was rules chair um, in the Senate, I believe. And so, um, you know, both, both bodies, um, you know, Becky Lockhart is obviously the resounding, uh, example from the House because she was she's the first female speaker and and has that distinction for the the rest of the history of our state. I think people will be surprised, and I'm not ready to name names, but I'm hearing rumors. I think people will be surprised how many people current House sitting legislators don't file for reelection next spring. I'm hearing interesting. Some, interesting some big names, and of course, I'm not going to announce those things. Uh, I'll let I'll I'll give those legislators the dignity to announce them. I'm always reminding people the legislature is a revolving door. People think, oh, it's the same people. I mean, I've been there for almost 10 years. And so I'm one of the one of the longer serving ones. But, um, you know, the House, um, the House usually has at least 20 new members every two years out of wow. 75. So. Uh, Corey, the insanity uh, by the woke school boards continues, and this latest one 
was in the Washington D suburbs. Uh, it's gone viral. Of course, I'm talking about the Loudoun County. What the heck happened in Loudoun County, and why has it completely flipped the Virginia governor's race? This this is wild, and I know some of you are like, "Why are we talking about Virginia on a Utah podcast?" Well, I, I've had several people over the last like couple of weeks ask me if I'm following this here in Utah, and they're like, "I mean, this thing is." gone big. It's a wild I story. I asked you so, that like a week or two ago. Right, you, did. you did. I forgot. So the Loudoun County, Virginia school board has made bathroom access for transgender students. It's basically its singular mission over the past few years. And over the summer, a transgender student actually raped a female student in the girl's bathroom at school. The superintendent and school board were notified about the incident. And the student who was born a male, but now identifies as gender fluid, but after the incident, this student was actually, rather than reprimanded, it was actually transferred to another school within the district where, where, where parents she, were not notified. Parents were not notified. No one knew about it, either in the prior school or in the new school. And in the new school, he, she proceeded to sexually assault another female student. So weeks later, the school board met. The superintendent was asked whether he knew of any sexual assaults involving the transgender bathroom policy. And he explicitly said no. He said no such examples of any pers such person or any such incident exists. Well, now we now have evidence that he was lying. He and the entire school board knew about the rape incident and tried to sweep it under the rug. And since that time, at least one school board member has resigned because evidence surfaced that uh, she uh, aggressively targeted parents who disagreed with her online. But this whole episode has completely blown up. It's wild. It's a disgrace. And it's put uh, the Democratic candidate, Terry McAuliffe, you know, the old Clinton um, uh, gladhander uh, fundraiser, put him uh, on back on his heels because parents are just livid over this. And Todd, what do you McAuliffe think? has recently brought in Kamala Harris, Barack Obama and Joe Biden to help uh, to, to help save his fledgling gubernatorial campaign he's he's a former governor of virginia by the way yeah not the yeah. current governor who's not running for re-election so he's not the incumbent but his since uh barack obama came in and kamala harris and joe biden he's actually tanked in the polls <laughs> they're doing more harm than good and barack obama actually shamed the parents saying that they they don't um they don't uh you know that that that, that, that this is a made-up controversy and mcauliffe in his debate with his um Republican contender basically said that parents have no business deciding what's taught in the schools. Yeah. And uh, it, it's just like it's someone's got to tell him when to stop digging. And so he was up over 10 percent, I think. Well, Biden won Virginia by 10 percent a, a year ago this week. And I think that uh, McAuliffe was up by 10 percent in September. And there was one poll released on Friday that had him down by 8 percent to, is it Yancey? How do you say the Republican challenge? Yunkin. Yunkin. And the reason we're talking about this, Corey, and to our listeners, is because the Virginia governor's race, which is going to be decided tomorrow, has become a bellwether uh, mandate on Joe Biden and the, the progressive uh, agenda that, by, and the, uh, that, that he's taken. And I, and I just want to be clear. I, I don't want to speak for you, Corey. I am not anti-transgender. Um, I know in Utah that a transgender teen is seven times more likely to commit suicide than a straight teen. Um, I think that we should be taking steps to help these kids overcome uh, some very difficult circumstances that they're facing. I, for one, uh, believe that we should be building new schools. 
with bathrooms that anyone can use and you just lock them when you get inside. Um, and I know that those, those present, you know, some other issues, but um, I'm not at all anti-transgender. Um, my heart goes out to, to these uh, kids and these adults who are struggling with those transgender um, issues. And I've met um, many of them in Utah. I consider some of them my friends. Uh, some of them I don't know enough to be friends, but um, these people as a whole, I don't believe are a danger to our children. Uh, but this one particular student was a danger to the student, to, to, to at least another student. And one thing that you left out, Corey, that I just want to state is this first girl in the first school that was raped uh, by the gender fluid student, her father went to a school board meeting to complain about the policy. He was arrested, and I believe he was initially charged with a crime, and he became the poster child of this what I'm going to call fake um, news that um, school boards are being targeted by domestic terrorists. And he was, his arrest was used as an example for the uh, Merrick Garland and the U.S. Department of Justice to open an investigation into domestic terrorism by parents against school board members. I'm not saying that every parent has been uh, has been polite and respectful in these school board meetings during COVID, but I have yet, I have yet to hear of a single experience of a parent using violence against a school board member or even threatening violence. Instead, they're threatening to speak up. Some of them have refused to wear their masks. We've had this problem even in Davis County where I live. Some of them have refused to social distance in school board meetings. And, um, but no, but I've yet to hear the first antidotal experience, uh, uh, story in the last, since COVID started of a parent actually threatening physical violence against a school board member. I, I've yet oh, yeah, to absolutely. So I think this is, this is worth uh, repeating just a little bit in case folks miss this. So the father of the, the raped, uh, his, his, of the female student who was raped in yes. school, he, he attended one of the Loudoun County board meeting, school board meetings to sort of call attention to this. The school board had him arrested for disorderly conduct. And then a few months later, what you were talking about is this National School Board Association, this wacky liberal outfit supposedly represents school boards. They sent a letter to the president asking him to deploy the FBI to investigate parents for domestic terrorism those who disagreed with them at board, at board meetings. That's what you were just talking about. Yeah. And the, the letter specifically cited this father for yeah. his, his father's arrest, a father whose daughter was raped. And meanwhile, the school board, regardless of what you feel about transgender students, they were trying to sweep this under the rug for their own political reasons. And the, the father, of course, I mean, understandably was just was livid. I don't think he attacked anybody, but he was kind of loud uh, and he was arrested and then he was cited in this de de Department of Justice investigation. And so Merrick Garland issued a memo committing resources to go after parents. My question, you know, is like, can you imagine if the Trump Justice Department had done something like this, start an investigation, the FBI for domestic terrorism, like activists who show up to board meetings? I mean, this is out of sight. Ordering the FBI to investigate parents who don't agree. <clears throat> Senator Mike Lee, uh, thankfully, I mean, joined uh, about a dozen Republicans this senators this past week. Um, he demanded the DOJ not threaten the use of federal law enforcement against parents. There was a judiciary hearing. Senator Lee asked Merrick, uh, the Attorney General Merrick Garland, to rescind the memo. And uh, 
Uh, Lee said, would you agree that a natural consequence of your memo would be chilling free speech, protesting uh, protected speech by parents, protesting local school board policies? And Garland basically gave a non-answer. I want to say thank you. Good for Senator Lee. Thank you for asking that. Several other senators. I mean, uh, the Attorney General Merrick Garland, I mean, what it seemed like to me, uh, I, I watched a lot of the hearing, and essentially he was trying to avoid answering the question. Anyway, a lot a lot of stuff. It's it's incredible, like the layers yeah. of the story. And, and this is the same Merrick Garland that the Obama administration was touting as a very moderate, you know, uh, selection to the U.S. Supreme Court that Republicans should have rallied around uh, because he was such a centrist and moderate. And what, what we see now is he's become a foot soldier in the liberal uh, progressive agenda. And now we have the Biden administration who's kind of running away from this anti-parent policy because their internal poll numbers are showing this is a disaster. Radioactive. And yet Merrick Garland goes to Congress and defends it. Um, and this letter that you mentioned from this radical group, it was it was all teed up by the Biden administration. It all happened on the same day, the, the same day that they received the letter. The DOJ opens an investigation. This was this was grease. The, the skids were greased, and this was a coordinated effort. Um, so, in, in any event, um, the last thing I want to say is this father of the of the rape victim. Uh, my heart goes out to him, oh, but yeah. um, based on audio that I've heard, I haven't seen the video, some of the things he said and some of the ways he acted at that Loudoun School Board meeting were clearly inappropriate. He didn't handle it well, and I may not have handled it well either if my daughter had been raped. So, um, Corey, President Biden uh, is in Glasgow, Scotland for a uh, world climate change conference. He made a dramatic visit to Congress to try to get a deal on his massive social overhaul bill that would give him something to brag about in Scotland. Of course, that uh, the progressive Democrats keep on scuttling that and trying to blame it on Republicans, even though the uh, Democrats have a majority in the House and 50-50 in the Senate. Uh, he's also, there's some interesting rumors that have come out uh, or uh, yeah, rumors, I guess, about what happened when he met the Pope. Let's say, let's just say he was so excited that he may not have been able to fully control himself. <laughs> um, I don't know if that's true, but that's certainly uh, being reported. So Corey, uh, how did Joe Biden hope to make a splash at this um, global conference? So uh, Democrats in Congress, as you said, I mean, they engaged in this frantic charade to finalize their budget busting pro, uh, social program bill. Biden was hoping, honestly, he wanted to ride in into the climate conference on a white horse and announce to the world that Democrats in Congress had successfully reordered the economy to serve their climate ambitions. <laughs> but thankfully, uh, you know, Joe Manchin once again stepped in. I mean, the man's a hero right now, at least. He stepped in and basically deep sixed most of what Biden had in mind, which were essentially massive subsidies mixed with harsh penalties to force utilities to switch to alternative fuels. The current deal, though, is not way better. I mean, it would still spend half a trillion dollars, $500 billion on incentives for basically rich people to buy electric vehicles. And it, it pays utilities to do what most are already doing, which is to diversify their their portfolios. But, and look, I am not against addressing climate change. I think it's a legitimate problem. I think it requires real solutions, but Democrats are not interested in obvious solutions like expanding the use of nuclear power. 
They're developing hydrogen fuel. I mean, I honestly don't have any patience for any conversation about climate change that doesn't involve nuclear. Democratic elites, they claim that climate change is the greatest threat facing humanity, but they only want to deal with it in ways that serve their larger agenda to really remake society. You know, the Green New Deal, for those who don't know this, um, I mean, it's essentially a socialist manifesto. It's about overthrowing capitalism. It's about pursuing social justice theology. Very little of it has much to do with, with uh, the climate. And so I, I know that Representative John Curtis from Utah, he's also attending the climate conference, probably there now. And remember, he created this new conservative climate caucus to come up with serious ideas that don't involve shutting down the U.S. economy. Look, Republicans- and, and Romney has said, if Republicans don't jump on the climate- bandwagon we're going to find that millennials don't vote republicans so it's not i mean i think there is something to that but but i i've been in congress a while and there's very few who are left who are saying climate change is a hoax i think most are in the camp of like yeah we should do something about it we just don't want to completely remake the economy and eliminate capitalism you know yeah i mean i and then and so anyway i'll just end by saying to your question, I mean, President Biden, Biden has shown that he, he actually doesn't care much about his infrastructure bill at the end of the day. I mean, it, it garnered huge bipartisan support, 18 Republican votes in the Senate. That's unheard of these days. But Biden has gone to Congress twice and basically said, you don't need to vote for my bill. And he's much more concerned with getting this, uh, giving progressives in, in the Democratic caucus their, their huge new entitlement um, program bill. And he's more interested in, you know, making bold statements at this climate conference to please the activist environmental lobby. Not so, much Corey, I want you to be honest. Um, how much sleep have you lost this weekend knowing that Biden couldn't brag about passing this bill <laughs> to the presidents of Congo and Ghana who are participating in this conference? I've tossed and turned that, that, that you know, China didn't even show up. And- well, I was going to say that we've got Congo and Ghana there. Uh, Russia and China not there. I think the president. I think uh, Vladimir is going to send a video, but uh, China is basically uh, boycotted this conference. Is it called COP twenty six? And and to be fair, it's not just Ghana and Congo and conference Congo. of the parties. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We've got Boris Johnson from the UK. We've got Scotland, and um, um, and I'm not opposed to world leaders talking about climate change. Um, I was an earlier adopter of climate change. I believe it's real. I believe the science shows that it's real. And uh, 10 years ago, I wasn't so sure. But the question is not to me, is it real or is it fake? The question is, what do you do about it? And the fact of the matter is, if, if the U.S. switched to zero carbon emissions tomorrow, and the rest of the world kept on doing what they were doing, it would have a negligible effect. Um, and so when, when China says we're not going to participate, that's huge because China is the biggest polluter in the world. And these emerging economies like Indonesia and China, they're not going to agree to cut carbon emissions because, because burning fossil fuels helps uh, uh, emer- you know, third world countries come out, become second and first world countries. And it also lifts people out of poverty. Well, Corey, uh, I'm not sure I'm going to be out of town next week. So um, maybe you'll be solo. Maybe you'll have a guest host or maybe we'll see everybody in two weeks. So sounds good. We'll figure it out. All right. Thanks. Been fun as always. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks. See you.